Welcome to ADK After Hours. I'm Kieran Harris, producer of the show and host of the short-lived all-children version of the game show Traders. I'm thrilled to break the news that my wonderful colleague Luisa Rodriguez is officially joining the podcast team at 80,000 Hours. Unless you've already listened to our episode with Rob Long over on uh, our original podcast feed, in which case that last sentence was a complete waste of your time. But if you're looking for something that won't be a complete waste of your time, then this is the episode for you. Luisa and Rob recorded this at the same time as their episode on artificial sentience, uh, which is why it seems to begin out of nowhere. But the topics and style were different enough that it ended up making more sense as a standalone episode over here on ADK After Hours. This one draws on their shared experiences of doing independent research, and they discuss assigning probabilities when you're really uncertain, struggles around self-belief and imposter syndrome, the importance of sharing work even when it feels terrible, balancing impact and fun in a job, and some mistakes Rob's made so far in his career. It's totally fine to listen to this one first, but I definitely recommend checking out Louisa and Rob's longer episode at some point over on the original 80,000 Hours podcast feed. It's number 146, and it's personally my favorite episode we've done over the last year. Okay, here's Louisa and Rob. So when you did like the nuclear war report, and you came up with a guesstimate model and probabilities, and I'm sure as you input those, a lot of it felt extremely uncertain, and it felt in some sense wrong to even be putting a number on stuff felt horrible. Yep. Yeah. How did you get over that feeling? And also, like, in retrospect, do you endorse having done that? Um, I'm guessing you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one thing that was nice about the nuclear project is, like, surprisingly many of the model inputs were, like, not guesses about probabilities that felt really unknowable. Like, some of the inputs were just, like, how many nuclear weapons might be used in a nuclear war? The maximum is the number that exists. The minimum is one. And then many of my kind of, I mean, I use probability distributions in part because I then got to be like, and I don't really know which side it's going to be. Like there are some theoretical reasons to think it's either going to be very few because that's like a particular kind of military strategy or very many because that's a different kind. And there are fewer stories to tell about why it's in the middle. And so I'm going to draw a curve that's like big at the small end and big at the upper end. Um, Bimodal is what the cool kids call that, I think. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like, I didn't even know it was called bimodal when I was doing it, which made me feel extra terrible about it. But you had a reason to do it. Yeah. Oh, I always shouldn't have felt terrible. Yeah. Well, I felt very impostery. Like, I felt like I should know more maths, I should know more probability, I should know more about how um, probability distributions worked. But basically, whenever I was, like, incredibly uncertain, I'd, like, try a uniform distribution, uh, which is basically where you put equal probability on all of the um, all of the possible outcomes. And then I was like, do I really believe that's true? And if the answer was no, I'd, like, try to add some probability to the things I think are more likely. Um, But plenty of my distributions are super, they're very either close to uniform, so close to saying I'm just totally uncertain about which outcome it might be, or they're like, I have one theory about how this works, and it's something like 
probability goes up over time. Or like if we're in the kind of world where we use this kind of nuclear targeting, then we're also in the kind of world where we use this other thing. And so these things are correlated. Um, And so that would change some things about the distributions, but they really weren't like, I rarely felt like I was putting numbers on things. And maybe, maybe you'd feel much better about a version where you were like starting from uniform probability. And seeing if I ever want to make it a little higher somewhere. A little bit higher somewhere. Yeah, and even yeah, yeah. if your probability is still like between zero and 99, then that is something. And you probably will make it even narrower. And that is better than I could do on consciousness. So that would be information to me. Um, so I think I, I think I was really partly just very lucky that there was like actual concrete information for me to draw on and, or like not just lucky, but like I am much more drawn toward projects with empirical data for this very reason. I think I'd find it way too uncomfortable to be like, what's my guess at the probability that this kind of argument about consciousness is right? That just sounds impossible to me. Right. There's even more, way, way, way more model uncertainty in consciousness. I mean, I'm guessing there is is also in the nuclear war case, right? Like, uh, I mean, there was some, eventually I'd get to some kinds of inputs that were super uncertain and weird and were about like politics and game theory. And those made me incredibly uncomfortable. And I basically just, yeah, again, did my best to like start from like, do I know nothing about this? No, I know something. So like I should put more probability on something than just say it's like a totally random guess. And then also I think I just took a ton of comfort in knowing that like I was going to explain why I put a certain probability where I put it. And if someone thought that reasoning was bad, I was going to link them to the guesstimate model and encourage them to put in a different probability. And that felt much more like, I mean, the fear is that like people are going to be like, you idiot, you think it's you think the probability is X? And for me, it was really comforting to be like... Make your own damn model. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've done all the work of of like setting up this model and explaining my reasoning. And you are super welcome to make counter arguments and put in your own numbers and have some other view that like pops out at the end. And like, by all means, try to convince me or try to convince other people. That seems just like objectively good. And a lot of the time, I didn't have full access to that motivation. A lot of the time, I was just like, this is terrifying, and I hate it. But, like, you only need one time, which is, like, publishing time, uh, to really... Like, I just had to be like, I hate this, but it's time to publish. I said I would, and I, like, convinced myself that there are good reasons to be transparent about this. So I'm going to hit publish and feel tortured about it. But like, I believe in it. It's extremely important. I really like this idea of reducing the anxiety of putting the probabilities in to a certain bin. I think it's great, actually. I think there's a probably a very natural human instinct to be like, I'm uncertain about this. So like uniform, who can say? Uniform distribution. Everything's equally likely. It's absurd to say anything else. I like the idea of starting from that and being like, no, come on. There's like a little bump here. Like, no, no, come on. Yeah, there's at least some bump. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But was there a different kind of anxiety that came from setting up the model? So, Mm, yeah, I I assume it'd be a little bit more threatening if someone was like, this is not how 
the risk of nuclear winter relates to the risk of collapse at all. It's the wrong nodes. You, what you've said is independent is not even close to independent. It's like completely misguided in a way that just like makes the whole thing confused. I'm guessing you had like a manager like checking that. And also, you know, our, our talents would have to, to do it yourself. But for the anxiety, like uh, that's what I would really want. Uh, double checked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I think part of the answer is again, um, I was thinking about really concrete empirical questions and the nodes in the model. Uh, I mean, I really started like super, super simply. Like, I think partly because I, I mean, I just felt really dumb about the issue of nuclear war and nuclear winter. Like, I didn't even pay enough attention to like current events to have like cashed intuitions about how likely certain nuclear wars were or like I didn't know much about the Cold War. So I felt so dumb that like I felt like I could learn something by being like, how many nuclear weapons are there? And what is the population of the U.S. and Russia? Like if we allocate all of those nuclear weapons to a different city, how many people could die? Like that was like informative to me. And I think I just... Well, started there and was like, if I'm going to learn something, plausibly other people will learn something too. And like, maybe you worry that it's actually really misleading. And if you have that gut intuition about it, then like, listen to that and try to figure out why. And maybe it leads to some good uh, ways to make the model more complex and nuanced and interesting and say more true things. But I think I really just did start from the like, I have no real intuitions about this. What would give me anything to like latch onto, uh, to be a, a bit clearer on like how bad nuclear war would be. And then I did add things like the assumption that cities would be targeted in like order of how big they were. Um, and when you do that, that makes the number even bigger. And so that made my model a bit more nuanced. And then I did get to like use a lot of research papers about, um, I mean, there's just like some papers that look at how much smoke is kind of lofted into the atmosphere uh, when a nuclear bomb detonates in a city. And I just took those inputs and like, I think maybe I widened them a bit for uncertainty, but I'm not even sure I did that. And that that was also just like, cool. I had absolutely no idea how, like how much smoke we'd get uh, if all of the current day's nuclear weapons uh, were going to be detonated in cities all at once. Now I have a number and like it is roughly less than like this paper says is required for nuclear winter. So that's like interesting and something I didn't know before. Um, here's a possible lesson from this. I'll see if you agree. Reasoning transparency is great. It helps the reader know what they can take from your report. It also seems maybe really helpful for the writer because... Totally. Because... You're making yourself, your brain, remember, my job here is not to say the final certain word on this topic forever. That's never what you were doing. <laughs> totally. But speaking for myself, somehow some part of my brain just, I, I sit down and I'm like, okay, the goal of this is to like look into these questions, find some evidence, say how you would think about it. Some part of my brain just immediately forgets that and starts saying, you must solve it. If you don't you must solve it. Yeah. Like and I it's funny, maybe like um we just need like posters above our of our computer reminds you like, what are you doing when you sit down to do this? Are you proving that you're 
the greatest genius of all time. And in, in <laughs> yeah. three months, you're going to solve like every um, perplexing question about consciousness and AI. Um, no, it is. It does seem like a good lesson, partly because I think that we both probably have. Well, we have. I don't know if you'd consider yourself someone who has imposter syndrome. I think you have some issues with self-belief around like your work as a philosopher. Like, are you good enough to be doing really, really important work in philosophy? And your bar is really high for that. And so it's not that you're like, you've got low self-confidence. And I think I'm closer to the low self-confidence side of things. Uh, You've mostly just got really high standards. Um, And so I'm coming at research questions with the like background idea that I'm dumb and that like, I know nothing, but like probably I could learn like a little something about it. Uh, And you're coming with a background belief of like, I'm pretty smart, which you are. Uh, And like, it'd be really cool if I could solve this philosophical problem of consciousness and AI systems. And like, you like think that's possible, which is both like, maybe true, but also, I mean, it's such a crazy ambition to me. Yeah, I think there's there must be some uh, art to taking the good parts of that possibly preposterous belief. Like, I think the rationality community is sometimes good at this. Like, uh, I think one of their principles is like, don't pretend at the outset like you couldn't possibly know anything or solve the problem. Like, maybe you just can. And... Don't be embarrassed about that. Don't take the social consensus that this is impossible too seriously. Um, Like maybe it just hasn't properly been tried. Because a bunch of other people were like, I probably can't solve it as well. Yeah, you want that belief without something that says you can't publish this until you know literally (laughs) everything and have perfectly solved everything. Totally. Or like you've only succeeded uh, if it turns out that you were the one person in the world who could solve solve everything. Exactly. Yeah, I agree that those seem like two beliefs that often don't come together, but that would probably make for a great researcher. <laughs> I think you see a lot of that in, you know, some of the olden days, like, here's a kind of preposterous belief. I can just figure out a lot better than people have what charities are more effective. Like, that's an insanely complicated question, right? And you're just going to waltz in as an outsider and, like, do a better job. But then at the same time, there's clearly something going on with those people where they're like, well, yeah, we're allowed to, like, release some, like, provisional conclusions and say what would change our minds. And it's not that we have... We definitely haven't settled that question. That that question will probably never be 100% settled, but here's, like, something to go on. Totally. Do you think you could access that mindset a bit more when, I don't know, either mid-project or preparing to publish something like, I'm really grateful that Ellie Hassenfeld and Holden Karnofsky were brave and ambitious enough to try to think about how to do charity much better and like publish preliminary results, which they've since updated many times. Like, I could totally do that with consciousness. Yeah, I think the gratitude angle might help. I think more just remembering that that's what I'm doing will be enough because I think something I find deeply intrinsically motivating and pleasurable is the process of talking to other people about what a weird and confusing world we live in and uh, reporting what we've 
found out about it and what our current best guesses are. Like, I think Stephen Picker in his book on writing has uh, some remark to the effect that like the best writing is just pointing at something in the world that is interesting and like describing it. And that's kind of the opposite of being in your own head about, am I good enough? What does this say about me? So uh, like, yeah, I think to the extent that I and the listener, if it applies to you, like, yeah, remember that the world is out there. It's confusing. You're trying to get less confused. Other people would also like to get less confused. You're helping them do that by reporting your own uh, journey. And then also, I still think you do need a dash of like, but yeah, also we success is possible. Maybe we could do it. That's yeah, like a, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, this does just all feel very related to the fact that we've had this shared experience. I mean, despite not talking that much about the content of our the research we've done in the past, but um, we have talked a bunch about the experience of it. And we've both found it, I think, really, really hard. And I guess kind of there are plenty of things that are very different about our jobs, but the, the things in common being very independent research and research on very hard and interdisciplinary questions. Is there is there more you want to say on what that's been like for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I hope you're also able to do this. It's not finding it really hard that's unpleasant. Of course it should be hard. Like, <laughs> Right, they are hard questions. And I, I think both of us really like hard work. Um, it's I guess it's remembering not to berate yourself for being hard. And I, I have had a few like humorous times this year where I'm like, oh yeah, I'm working on... <laughs> Consciousness, consciousness and AI like of course it's hard um totally yeah I mean well as, as did you know uh from being my friend I yeah I've t- I've tons of stuff to say on this subject I mean oh yeah here's here's an interesting balance like I think there's a lot of emotional stuff that you can get sorted out that is very helpful for research and I think sometimes people maybe don't realize the extent to which the intellectual virtues are in some sense like emotional and character virtues of like equanimity and not being blinded by pride or fear. Totally. Status. Against, yeah. Yeah. But then on the flip side, I, a lot of that stuff is definitely not sufficient and not all of it is necessary if you just fix the incentive structure around you or the environment around you. Yeah. 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 I do think of you as someone who is just especially wise and deliberate about uh, how you set up your environment and kind of the incentives you want to create for yourself to make sure you do any research, do good research, um, share your research. Yeah. Do you mind saying some stuff about the kinds of stuff you found helpful? And I guess like the specific kinds of struggles that those strategies were trying to help you overcome. Yeah, definitely. I, I think for anyone doing research, like the pit you really want to avoid is your work not making contact with the world or more importantly with other people at regular intervals. Oh yeah. Gosh. I mean, the number of times I've been like, this isn't ready to share. I need to make it better first. And then you spend a year of your life writing something (laughs) that like would have looked totally different and much better if you'd like asked anyone to give you thoughts on the direction it was going. I think for a certain class of researcher with a probably pretty common human experiences, maybe the most important thing you could have is a friend or manager who says, you are sharing that now. Send that to person X. I don't just send it. Just ship it. Yeah. 
it like it doesn't matter that there are unfinished sentences like that is fine just like get feedback on what you have yeah and i mean having a collaborator is a great way to get out of this pit and just like never be in it um to begin with i've recently been writing a paper where me and my co-authors have only written in zoom meetings together wow wild it's extremely fun i certainly won't claim that it's like sustainable or optimal for all projects but what it eliminates is really any chance of getting in your own head right or progressing and it's just so interactive and uh sounds really social it sounds like like maybe you've got some nerves about typing your thoughts in front of your colleagues uh in real time but like once you start doing it you get all of the gains of like your smart colleagues help you make your ideas better. And if they're doing it with you, you probably, they probably have some respect for your ideas in the first place. And probably you'll have some good ideas, some ideas that could be better. And you'll just find all of that out really quickly. Yeah. So that's one thing is like, yeah, having the right environment where things are shared and, and social. Of course, I think there are times when everyone needs to go off and just sit in a room and just rack their brain over stuff. I think for most important problems, you need a lot of that time. So I'm not saying tweet every thought you have and make sure you get feedback on it and, and stuff. Sure. But uh, I mean, that said, just to like put even more emphasis on this idea, I don't think I ever needed time alone in a room. Like when I was really doing independent research, I think I basically always benefited from having sometimes daily management check-ins where I was like, here's what I did today. Here's the part I'm stuck on. And I want to like, uh, I want you to be my rubber ducky. Um, sometimes I did it with like unwilling housemates. Yeah. I've just like always found that like talking to people about the research thing I'm thinking about in that moment on the daily is better than, is better than waiting as long as like people are up for it. One thing I'll be very interested to see and uh, excited if it works is to what extent large language models and chatbots can serve this role. Totally. Yeah. I, I, I suspect there will be things that you don't get from it because I think it is important to know that a real human sometimes is saying, yeah, good job. And, and these ideas are interesting, but for like rubber ducking and brainstorming, I think maybe just the impression of actually being in conversation with someone could do a lot. Right. Have you ever used anything like that? Yeah. I've been using chat GPT to just, uh, uh, yeah, I I have it open a lot now while I'm researching just to be like, (sighs) "Ah, yeah, I'm thinking about, I sometimes just sort of put my day plan or like what would be my day plan. And then it'll just say something like ChatGPT has this very kind of HR, oh, like okay. feel good persona because of its training. So it usually says something innocuous like, yeah, I'll just remember to take breaks. And it's important to like <laughs> drink enough nice. water and uh, you can do it with a little faith in yourself. But, you know, that's it's good to know. It's good to be that's reminded good advice. of. <laughs> yeah. But I think you probably already could be getting a lot more out of current language models in terms of actual feedback. And I'm sure future ones uh, will we'll provide a lot of that. I guess now that it's funny, I like felt surprised to hear you say that, but I did ask GPT-3 for um, (laughs) questions to ask you in this interview. Right. I bet it did a decent job too, would be my guess. It did. It totally did. Yeah. Are are there any other things, uh, strategies that have helped you make independent research more fun or more productive? I guess we've been being very philosophical and emotional, but uh, some nuts and bolts things I can recommend. Highly recommend the app cold turkey blocker. There are other internet blockers as well, but basically I have a block on cold turkey blocker that will block everything except Google Docs. 
And that's awesome. That'll do it. I mean, if you put your phone away and you put that on, like you're going to have to get some words into your your Google Docs. Highly recommend that. Yeah, that might be all for like nuts and bolts type stuff for now. Um, I guess here's another philosophical one as, uh, so like sometimes you're feeling bad at work because you haven't been sharing your work enough. And if you had a friend telling you to share the work, then like things would just instantly get a lot better. Or maybe you're not sleeping enough or you're iron deficient. And if you sorted that out, everything would be fine. There are some times when you're just consistently you're feeling bad doing the work because you fundamentally don't care about it. And that's a sign that you shouldn't be doing it. Uh, as a disclaimer, that has not been the case with this consciousness and AI work. Nice. But has it been the case with you before? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think sometimes I've overdone the self-help and the environment and the let's try a different note-taking app and let's try a different Pomodoro length. Just overdone that instead of being like, oh, the reason I can't focus on this is I don't care about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been feeling really, well, I feel like I've been coming to grips with what has felt like a very sad realization to me, which is um, I feel like when I got more involved with EA and like learned some things about rationality, learned some things about mental health, learned some things about like, uh, well, like strategies for doing good. I just developed this sense that a lot about my experience was changeable. Like you can donate a bunch of your salary and not really miss it. Like you can still be like roughly as happy or you can choose a research topic that is like really valuable, even if it doesn't totally intrinsically interest you or like hasn't historically. And that's because you can like get really interested in it by some mechanism of like, you think it's important, so you'll be motivated to work on it. Or even like you can use some tools and rationality to make it so that like your system one, so to speak, your kind of like intuitive or emotional side of your brain comes to grip with some things your system two thinks just by like, I don't know, talking yourself into it in in some structured way that like makes it more likely that like maybe, I mean, for me, a very specific example that is not related to work or careers or research is um, I think I felt like I could well, I could feel less imposter syndrome. I could feel like there were a bunch of feelings that I could, I thought I could feel less of because because of stuff like not just self-help, but like rationality tools and arguments about impact and arguments from philosophers about careers and stuff. And I feel like I'm, yeah, coming to terms with the fact that like less about me is changeable than I thought. And probably there are a bunch of research topics that are really important, like really genuinely like or instrumentally important to doing a bunch of good uh, that I probably couldn't force myself to do, even if I had uh, a great manager and like uh, a bunch of friends giving me support. And I think it's been years that I've, I thought like, I just need the right structures and then, and then I can do the most impactful thing. Uh, And I, I think I'm slowly realizing like, probably I can't just overhaul all of my intrinsic interests and motivations. I probably have to work with them some. That sounds like a very important lesson for you. And I'm very happy to to hear that you're coming to it. Uh, 
as your friend, but also, yeah, for any listeners who feel like they're constantly fighting against some sort of intuitive sense or intuitive excitement. Um, it's tricky because there is some amount that we do endorse, like not doing what's immediately the most fun and exciting, but there definitely is a point at which you're just bullying yourself and you're going to limit your long-term impact and happiness. I guess one heuristic is it should feel like a, uh, like a negotiated decision between the parts of you that do and don't want to do something. It was like, yeah, say more. Yeah, there's like maybe some integrated consensus between the unexcited part and the excited part where the like unexcited part really has been brought on board and like its concerns have been heard that (laughs) there are some things that are boring about this, but like... And not just like, shut up, unexcited part. You get no seat at this table. The part of us that only cares about impact is uh, the only person... taking the wheel. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's just... Very much how I was making career decisions for a very long time and or like topics for research or um, yeah, just a bunch of choices. And I don't even know that I've, I think I'm still working on getting all those parts integrated and like actually letting my, uh, the part of me that has intrinsic motivations and interests that don't necessarily line up with impact I'm still working on letting that part of me have a seat at the table. It still feels very uncomfortable and I still feel a strong desire to banish it. Yeah, I think a certain failure mode of otherwise helpful techniques like cognitive behavioral therapy and, you know, rationality tools of like really considering the impact and stuff. One failure mode is using that to bully the resistant parts and not to like have a conversation with them about the bigger picture. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that just sounds very familiar. (laughs) Um, Do you feel like you've been able to do that? Yeah, I've been I've been working on it. I think it it helped that I did kind of realize I was uh, doing what I'm describing, like um, like I was using CBT in in helpful ways, but uh, I think had this internal narrative of the, the rational part that really needs to show up and tell everyone who is boss. And like, you know, going back to the brain, like that's just not that much of your brain. And like a lot of people should do CBT and and recognize distorted thinking. But there just is a limit to how much I think you should be really coercing yourself to do stuff. I think as with all things, there is balance here. Like I've seen certain corners of like Twitter and certain intellectual communities that seem to have this very strong belief that like in some sense you should never be doing anything that looks like self-coercion. Wow. I think that's just probably like gotta be wrong. I would be very surprised if that's true. But there's like some truth in I think being very wary of stuff that makes you feel like you're killing or locking away like a core part of yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like part of my like coming to terms with this is just realizing that it's, I think I had the belief that like I could lock it away and to make it more concrete, you know, what what is an example of a thing I've locked away? I mean, I think there was just a long time where I wasn't considering my, like, what kinds of work I enjoyed um, in deciding what careers to consider. Which I'll add is, I do think counter to official 80,000 hours advice, like, it should be a factor. I know they do say correctly, don't just follow right. whatever pops into your head as your passion. But anyway, 
just pointing that out. Totally. No, I agree. I totally oversimplified it. And I think it was because I was unrealistic about, you know, they said, don't follow your passion, consider your personal fit as one consideration. And I was like, well, it seems better if I don't consider personal fit and I just do the highest impact thing, regardless of whether I enjoy it or not. And like, that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. And the like mistake here was thinking that like, I could make that sacrifice. It turns out, I think I just like literally cannot. And I thought maybe I'd like do it and suffer. And that would just be like a choice I could make. But instead the like part that was like, no, we want to do work that's interesting sometimes, or it's not even interesting. I think I've always been very lucky to do interesting work, Um, but to do work that scratches some other creative itch or like, yeah, like plays more to like things I naturally enjoy and find um, really stimulating and motivating. That part apparently just like demands to be uh, heard eventually. And so I think for me, it played a role in like bouncing between jobs a lot. And probably to some extent, that's meant I had less impact or like, it's a confusing question, but like totally seems possible that that kind of thing could happen. And I think it really, yeah, just boils down to the fact that I just was wrong about whether realistically I could make as many sacrifices as I thought I wanted to. Yeah, I think one thing that can really complicate this process, too, is it sounds like you were at least aware of the existence of this inclination, or maybe you had like really locked it away. But I just want to point out, sometimes people have motivations that it would be painful for them to even acknowledge that they have. Totally. And then they're really kind of steering a ship with a, a broken rudder because like they can't, it, that makes it impossible to even come to a reasoned consensus between these different motivations. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, I feel, I do feel very inspired because I do think of you as someone who's um, thought about this very wisely in your own career. I think I have basically seen you be like, I could work on this philosophical problem. Uh, I don't want to, and I'm not going to force myself to. I'm going to find things at the intersection of, I really want to work on it and uh, valuable for the world. I I hope that approach is at least working somewhat. Um, uh, sorry, that's that's being too modest. Like cl- clearly, some things are going right, and some things are not going right because that is also life. And uh, you and I both need to remind ourselves that the gold standard is not a hundred percent happy, frictionless impacts yes. uh, every every waking hour. Yes, that is that's another lesson I do need regular. I think I, I think that's the lesson I need above my desk. Yours can say, yeah, you don't need to solve philosophy <laughs> now. Uh, and mine will say, you cannot and will not be happy and maximizing your impact all the time. Yeah, I guess a question I wanted to ask that's kind of related, because these are, I guess, pitfalls that we're falling into. Um, yeah, do you think there are mistakes you've made in your career that listeners might learn from? Yeah, absolutely. Um I mean, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this because I think you've been part of this process this year. I think one of the weakest points in my like work process is like month to month or quarter to quarter focus. I think I've made a lot of improvements in my own life to have very good day to day focus. Like I know to put on that blocker. I know to put away my phone. And so I can show up day in, day out and like, you know, do some deep work and Cal Newport and all that. I think this is related to the question of management and accountability. I 
Yeah, I think one of my biggest weaknesses or bottlenecks has been something like long-term or medium-term plans and prioritizing, okay, let's just take the next two months to finish this and then we'll move on to the next thing. So again, life happens and I think everyone probably always feels like they're not optimally segmenting and, and focusing stuff and you know, you get five projects going at once and now they're all blurring together. But yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely say I've I've made mistakes in not finishing stuff in the right sequence or at the right time. Yeah. What do you think has made that hard for you? I think one is um, sort of a natural disposition towards being interested in a lot of stuff, which I think is a, a great strength of mine in some ways, but makes it makes this process harder. I think some of it was lack of self-knowledge and not realizing that that's where the trouble was coming in and focusing more on the the daily stuff. I think, I mean, I think a lot of it is the environment and the nature of what I'm doing. You know, this probably wouldn't be an issue in a job that has like quarterly deliverables and you just, you know, have to have to hit them. Yeah. Yeah. So as with other stuff, I think this can be fixed with a mix of better self-knowledge, but also the right environment and the right management. And when I say the right management, I have uh, you in particular in mind because I brought you on board as my like, what are you finishing this month um, <laughs> accountability buddy? And yeah, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on on that question. Yeah, I mean, well, we've we've both actually done this for each other um, at different points in our lives. Um, you did this for me in 2019 when I was working on civilizational collapse research and was feeling so impostery that I like couldn't type anything on a page. And I think for like months we had daily calls and I set accountability goals with money tied to them. And I think I paid you hundreds of dollars. <laughs> um, so it was very nice to get to repay the favor this year. And yeah, I guess, yeah, my sense is that, I mean, I do think from my perspective, a lot of what was going on was you having an extremely high standard um, for what it meant for a project to be done. And so there were other projects that seemed exciting to you and that you, that it would seem good to me if you like wrapped up the one you're doing and moved on to the next one. Or like, I don't know, like prioritization seemed hard for you, partly because it didn't seem like any of at least any of the solo projects you were working on were ever meeting your standards, uh, were like ever good enough to be done. And so I feel like a big part of the value add I added was um, just being like, let's set a delivery date. Like you've worked on this for several months now. Like from the outside, it seems like if you've worked on something for six to 12 months, it's sensible to share it with the public or to share it with uh, whoever kind of commissioned you to write this report. So like, we're calling that date the end date and we're just like doing what we can between now and then to wrap it up. Whereas I think your kind of default perspective was something like, it's not done until I've solved it. And that's a really ridiculous goal that you could have probably tried to chip away at for like years and years and years. Yeah. And I think it's important that I knew in some sense that's not the goal. And I could have told you and written that down. But I think by recognizing that my brain was going to keep pulling towards that, that's when you need outside help to have a sane yes, friend yeah. just be like, you're doing it again. Right, exactly. We had the same conversation so many times. Like, it wasn't like I was like, 
telling you things you didn't know. It was just, or or even like each time we checked in was like troubleshooting a different problem. It was like very often you were like, I need to share this thing in two weeks. And then one week went by and you were like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to share it in another two weeks. And I was like, nope, you said you were going to do it in two weeks, which is next week. So you have to do that. And we talked about the reasons we endorsed and they made sense to you. And then you did it. Yeah, I guess the listeners can like gauge the advice. I do think some of this is like an especially kind of raw problem from the way I am. But do you think this is probably something most people will face if they're not, you know, working for a line manager with like, you know, deliverables that show up every quarter or um, yeah, where, who will this apply to? Uh, I mean, my guess is like, honestly, it feels like fewer than like, 10% of the people I know would just like decide to write something for the EA forum and then like get all the way to completion in like as short a time as they would endorse or like, I don't know, sharing it for feedback as soon as they would endorse. I think almost no one does that. I certainly didn't. Like the only reason I ever published anything on the EA forum is because I was paid to and we set a hard deadline of like, a certain day and a certain month. And when it got to that time, I felt like it was unacceptable that we were publishing it and just felt horrible. Like I felt like it was the wrong thing to do so strongly. And I think I could have worked on that for like years and years more before I actually wanted to share it or publish it or whatever. And I think I just basically know no one who who doesn't have some of that. I guess some people do struggle with it more than others. And that's probably like, Impostery people, perfectionisty people, anxious people. Does that sound kind of right? Yeah, for sure. Another point, um, like, is uh, this goes to the point of not beating yourself up for struggling. One of the best questions someone asked me in the last calendar year is I was talking about the kind of the pitfalls I felt like I was in. And she just asked me, what do researchers need? Huh. Like, wow. In general, what do they need? Whoa. Um. And I was like, oh, well, you know, they need deadlines. They need people to check in on them. Yeah. They need they need regular feedback. They need breaks sometimes and stuff like that. And, um, and it was totally obvious to you that researchers in general need that. However, you... I, I think I was thinking about this 10% that you mentioned of people who somehow weirdly won some lottery where they don't need that. And those people do exist and like hats off to them. <laughs> but if you're not, uh, you need to try to get those things. And you probably shouldn't hate yourself for it. Uh, probably, yeah. <laughs> probably. If you enjoyed that one, you'll be delighted to know we've got plenty more Lisa content coming up over the next few months. If you want to hear more from Rob, you can follow him on Twitter at RGBLong and subscribe to his Substack experience machines uh there are links to both of those and the blog post associated with this episode and a reminder that you can listen to louisa and rob's excellent episode on artificial sentience over on the original eighty thousand hours podcast feed that's number 146 all right audio mastering and technical editing for this episode by ben cordell and Miley mcguire full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by katie moore and i produce the show Thanks for listening.